This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good morning. Uh, today's briefing is being recorded. A video will be available online at www.rand.org, or you can listen to today's discussion by subscribing to Rand's Congressional Briefing Series podcast on iTunes. Welcome to this Rand Congressional Briefing. I'm Wynne Burkle, and I head up the Rand Corporation's Office of Congressional Relations here in Washington, D.C. Let me tell you briefly about Rand. The Rand Corporation is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. RAND focuses on the issues that matter most, such as health, education, national security, international affairs, law and business, the environment, and more. As a nonpartisan organization, RAND operates independent of political and commercial pressures. We serve the public interest by helping lawmakers reach informed decisions on the nation's most pressing challenges. RAND disseminates its findings and recommendations as widely as possible to benefit the public good. There are more than 10,000 RAND reports that you can find and commentary available online at www.rand.org. Uh, this year, Congress is reauthorizing PAPA, uh, the Pandemic All Hazards Health Preparedness Act. Today, you'll hear from a variety of RAND health experts who will brief you on their findings, their work regarding the improvements of the public health system since 9-11, as well as those areas where challenges still remain and recommendations for improvement going forward. Uh, let me introduce uh, Art Kellerman, who will introduce the, pan the panel this morning in our topic. Dr. Arthur Kellerman is Vice President and Director of RAND Health. Before joining RAND, he was a Professor of Emergency Medicine and Public Health and served as Associate Dean for Health Policy at the Emory School of Medicine in Atlanta. Uh, he founded Emory's Department of Emergency Medicine and served as its first chair. He established the Emory Center for Injury Control and holds Excellence in Science Awards from two organizations, the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine and the Injury Control and Emergency Health Services section of the American Public Health Association. Uh, he was elected to the Institute of Medicine, IOM, in 1999. He served on IOM's Committee on the Future of Emergency Care in the U.S. Health System uh, and the Committee on Effectiveness of National Biosurveillance Systems. Uh, he was a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow, at which time he worked uh, on the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform in the House. A clinician and researcher, he practiced and taught emergency medicine for more than 25 years in public teaching hospitals in Seattle, Washington, Memphis, Tennessee, and Atlanta, Georgia. Let me introduce Dr. R. Kellerman. Thank you, Wynn. As he said, I'd, probably the most important part of that introduction was that I spent a year as a congressional staffer, so I know how hard you all work. And I appreciate the fact that you came out this morning to hear about this important topic. This briefing is really inspired in part by this book, The Long Shadow of 9-11, which has been produced by a number of RAND's best minds, representing a broad array of backgrounds in national security, intelligence, economics, and public policy. And one of the chapters in this book looks at what have we done, where are we today, and where do we need to go 10 years after 9-11 in public health and emergency preparedness? My opportunity this morning is to serve as the moderator for a very distinguished panel, set the stage for what will be initially a very concise opening briefing, and then at that point, the camera will turn off, and really the value of this is the give and take and the Q&A opportunities that all of you will have to ask questions and engage this panel. I just want to briefly introduce them first so we don't have to break the tempo in between their uh, opening remarks. From your right to your left, 
We have first Jeannie Ringel, who's a senior economist at RAND and leads RAND's Public Health Systems and Preparedness Strategic Initiative. She's also a faculty member at the RAND Party Graduate School. Jeannie has conducted research on a variety of topics, including public health preparedness, healthcare financing and organization, and substance abuse. Jeffrey Wasserman is a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation and assistant dean for academic affairs at the Party RAND Graduate School. He currently leads our National Health Security Project, sponsored by the Department of Health and Human Services, and co-leads projects related to public health entrepreneurship and the relationship between law and public health preparedness. Anita Chandra is a behavioral scientist and manager of the Behavioral and Social Sciences Group at the RAND Corporation. She's also an expert in public health, child and adolescent health, and community-based participatory research. She works on building community resilience to disasters and engaging the non-governmental sector in response and recovery efforts. Last but not least, Melinda Moore is a public health physician and associate director for global public health at RAND. Before joining RAND six years ago, Dr. Moore served 25 years as a medical officer in the U.S. Public Health Service, 20 years at the CDC, and the last five years with the Department of HHS's Office for Global Health Affairs. September 11th was a painful wake-up call for our public health system. Prior to that, public health had struggled for years. We had had a number of outstanding accomplishments, particularly in the first half of the 20th century, but in many regards, public health had fallen into neglect and disrepair, in part fostered by a sense of national complacency. So as a result, on the day of September 11, public health was hampered by insufficient funding, significant gaps in workforce, laboratory capacity, information technology, many health departments didn't even have connections to the internet, and significant challenges in their organizational capacity. In 1988, the Institute of Medicine issued a major report and declared that the public health system in the United States is in disarray. Fourteen years later, the IOM revisited this question and essentially had found no appreciable progress. 9-11 sparked new awareness and substantially increased funding for public health in the United States. Congress realized that a robust public health system is vital for national security. And as a result, Congress authorized and appropriated significant resources in investments in public health infrastructure and particularly in public health preparedness for biological threats and other major hazards. So the question today, really the focus of this panel is, has that investment paid off? The general consensus is that our nation is better prepared, but it's difficult to demonstrate this in a rigorous and quantitative way, something important for all of you and your bosses on the Hill. Disasters and other emergencies are rare. That's a good thing, but it means we have very few opportunities to really measure and benchmark how we do with real-world, large-scale events. Let's hope we don't have one this weekend or early next week to test our systems, but we have to be ready uh, with the hurricane that's currently in the Caribbean. There are few validated and reliable measures for preparedness in use today, although this is something we're working on very hard. So the key questions for today's discussion and for the short opening presentations are these. Where has progress been made? What challenges remain? 
and what is the path forward. So to lead with the opening uh, presentation is my colleague, Jean Ringel. Okay. Um, there's a lot of money that's been injected into the public health system, as Art mentioned, since September 11th. And I think that those, that investment really has paid off in a number of important ways. Um, but a lot more ways than I can possibly tell you about today in the three to five minutes that I have to spend with you. So I've tried to identify uh, just a couple things that I wanted to highlight. And so the first of those is uh, a lot of time and resources has been put into planning efforts. And those have paid off in some very concrete ways. And I think we can best illustrate some of those by looking to the response to H1N1 and pulling some examples there of how planning efforts had paid off going, uh, going into that response. So some specific planning efforts that we can, we can look at are um, the strategic national stockpile. A lot of effort and time had gone into developing plans to distribute material from the strategic national stockpile out to states in the case of an emergency. And in the case of H1N1, this is something that people pointed to as having worked quite well as antivirals were distributed from the strategic national stockpile out to states. Um, so that planning effort had paid off in making that go smoothly in a real event. Similarly, you might point to some planning that had been done at the Food and Drug Administration about um, how to streamline the process for um, licensing a pandemic vaccine. A lot of work had been done ahead of time, really with the fear of H5N1, but really prepared us for H1N1 that um, to streamline the process, to really be clear ahead of time for manufacturers about what kind of data would be needed on efficacy and safety in order to license a pandemic vaccine. And that really served to shorten the amount of time it took to develop and produce a vaccine for H1N1. So there's a number of very specific planning efforts that we can point to that uh, have paid off. But I think more generally, we can talk a bit about sort of the planning process and the time and effort that people have put into working together and sitting down together at the planning table and bringing together the relevant organizations, whether it's public health, healthcare, emergency management, law enforcement, and really just getting together and talking and learning about each other's relative roles and responsibilities. And what that does is build those relationships and the trust that's needed to really mount an effective response. So in H1N1, many people pointed to those prior planning efforts, not so much the plans in a lot of cases, but the fact that they knew the people that they needed to work with, and that allowed them to be flexible and adapt very quickly when the H1N1 scenario didn't exactly match what they had had necessarily been planning for. Another area that where there's been significant investment is in new technologies. And certainly there's been a lot of improvement there. One important area is in communication technologies. Again, all of these different players in the response planning together uh, and at the time of September 11th, there were significant problems of interoperability between those communication systems. And we've made significant strides in that area, though there are still some uh, improvements to be made. Another area of important investments in technology would be in disease detection and monitoring. And again, an example from H1N1, we were able to identify the H1N1 virus very quickly, largely because of investments in new lab technologies to identify novel influenza viruses. In fact, a new test that was being pilot tested in both California and uh, Texas where the first H1N1 virus emerged. So those investments in technology have paid off. Another area in which there are um, 
some improvements that we can note is really in developing an evidence base. As Art mentioned in the introduction, it's really challenging to measure performance in preparedness, largely because there are not that many large-scale uh, events. And, you know, obviously that's a good thing, but it does uh, restrict our ability to really learn by doing and testing our strategies in action. And so early on, measurement of performance and preparedness was really focused on things that were easy to sort of count and understand, wrap your hands around, you know, how many people were trained, what supplies do we have in the closet, um, and things that are important but don't necessarily tell us anything about whether we can actually use those supplies and mount an effective response. So I think the real advance in this area over time has been in a movement away from capacity measures to ones that actually focus on measuring capability. The public health emergency preparedness cooperative agreements between the CDC and the states have now developed a, a small but growing suite of capability measures that really focus on measuring their ability to do certain things. So for example, develop and disseminate a pub, uh, risk communication message or to effectively use their incident command structure. And those types of measures are going to be really important over time because they both facilitate quality improvement. You can see whether or not you're doing better over time, but they also facilitate accountability. We know that when a dollar or resources go into a particular activity, we can measure over time whether or not that money is really paying off. And so that's an important um, area to continue progress in and developing those sorts of capability measurements to facilitate quality improvement and um, accountability. So that's a quick snapshot of a couple areas of progress uh, to just give you a sense of where there's been some improvements. I'm going to turn it over now to my colleague Jeffrey Wasserman who's going to talk about some of the challenges that remain. Thank you Jeannie and good morning everyone. And Now for the glasses half empty point of view. I think there could be no doubt that significant progress has been made, especially over the last uh, couple of years, the last two years. But important challenges remain. And I think the first challenge is that there are still key elements of the public health system that remain poorly integrated. This is both within the federal government and between the federal government and the states, among the states and locales, and even the private sector. And I think the best way to sum it up is to say that there's still a lot of ambiguity over the question of who should do what and when in the case of an emergency. Uh, the second point I would make is that there's an urgent need to enhance the surge capacity of the healthcare system as a whole. So if you take hospitals as an example, I think it's fair to say that in any urban area on a weekend night, the ERs are flooded with people, they're often diverting ambulances from one hospital to another, and so you could just imagine what would happen in the case of a real public health emergency where people flock to the ERs in hospitals. And the same is true with other healthcare facilities. So it's not just the hospitals that need to increase their surge capacity, but it's, uh, it's nursing homes, it's rehab facilities, it's home health care agencies, and so on. And this remains, I think, an important gap. The third important challenge is that in this uh, terrible economic environment, funding constraints really threaten to undermine a lot of the progress that we've made uh, over the last few years in preparedness. And that we need to do more with less, and we need to be smarter about how we use our resources, how we could better coordinate federal and state resources with private sector ones, and so on. And I think, however, on an optimistic note, there is a pretty good path forward. 
The first element of that path is that we need to uh, embrace a culture of shared responsibility. And what do I mean by that? I mean that I think it's fair to say that we could expect the federal government to do certain things for us in the case of an emergency. Investigate disease outbreaks, uh, make sure that there's a robust market for vaccine by working with ma uh, manufacturers, and so on. And of course, have the capacity to test uh, specimens in public health laboratories. At the same time, employers have a responsibility to care for their employees in the case of an emergency by providing opportunities for social distancing when that's appropriate in the case of infectious disease outbreaks and so on. So I think we should all be able to count on our employees, in our cases RAND, to do certain things to protect our health. And finally, I think we as individuals should bear some responsibility as well. You, know, you could ask yourselves, do you have enough food and water stockpiled in your homes to keep you going for 10 days, two weeks, what have you, if need be? Do you have essential medication stockpiled? Do you have a plan in place with your family to, uh, with respect to where you would meet up in an emergency if you couldn't get back to your home, your kids are in school, and so on? So I think we all need to ask ourselves that question. Are we personally prepared to confront a wide range of threats? Okay, as I mentioned earlier, in terms of this path forward, we have to think really strategically about how we can use resources better. You know, again, we're stuck, but we have resources. We have individual resources. There are uh, community-based organizations that have resources that could be brought to bear in an emergency. So it's not just the federal government, the state governments, and so on that we can count on. And finally, I think the recent national health security strategy, which was submitted by the secretary of HHS about a year and a half ago to the Congress, provides a very good blueprint or roadmap for where we should head. It describes a small set of goals, really two, and ten objectives that we as a nation need to try to hit over the next couple of years. It's a living document. It's something that by legislation uh, will be revised every four years, and we would encourage uh, the Congress to keep that requirement in PAPA, to have a quadrennial a national health security strategy, and a biennial implementation plan. One of the key goals, one of the two goals of uh, national health security is to improve our community resilience. And so now I'm going to turn things over to Anita, who's our expert on community resilience, to cover what we have in mind in that regard. Thank you. Thanks, Jeffrey, and good morning. As Jeffrey noted, uh, we are doing a lot of work at RAND on this issue of community resilience. And I think the recent emergencies that we've experienced, the recent disasters since 9-11, through Hurricane Katrina, through the Gulf States oil spill, through even Joplin a few months ago, really underscored the value of the non-governmental community, the private sector. And when I speak about the non-governmental community, I'm talking about community-based organizations, volunteer organizations, faith-based organizations, organizations and the for-profit business sector. We've seen time and time again in recent events, uh, in particular, that nonprofit and for-profit assets are vital to helping the community respond to disasters and perhaps even more importantly, recover from those disasters. We know that these organizations are really the go-to entities in many respects. They provide valuable information and referral. They also provide direct services, whether that's case management services 
services or health and behavioral health services, financing, and so forth. And yet we haven't fully leveraged their assets appropriately. In addition, the non-governmental sector really has an insight on their communities, not only the assets and needs, but they understand the social and cultural complexities of their community and have become increasingly vital as we prepare not only for public health emergencies, but other kinds of emergencies and disasters. In addition, it's really critical to think about the non-governmental sector in that long-term recovery period. We've now experienced, thankfully, that emergencies are rare, but we te are tending to have smaller and large-scale emergencies overlapping with each other. And in that space, the non-governmental sector has been instrumental in helping communities get back on their feet. So what does this all mean given the current state of the policy documents like the National Health Security Strategy and so forth? Well, it's encouraging. For the first time in a lot of national documents, we're seeing a formal recognition of the non-governmental sector, the roles that community-based organizations, the business sector and so forth, should and can play in responding and recovering from emergencies. Jeffrey mentioned the National Health Security Strategy, which as one of its guiding goals was to build community resilience. There's a real nod in that document to the vital role of NGOs. But similarly, the draft National Disaster Recovery Framework also focuses on the role of these entities. The CDC standards um, and guidance that came out in the March of this year focus on the role of non-governmental um, organizations. And certainly the reauthorization of PAPA talks a lot about aligning HHS and DHS activities with what's happening at the local community um, level. So this is a very exciting time where there's a significant amount of federal alignment around some of the core principles and the realities of engaging the non-governmental sector. But we have a lot of challenges ahead. First of all, the roles and responsibilities of some of these entities still remains unclear. So there is a value that's now being placed in these strategies and policy documents, but we don't yet have the operational picture, the guidance that we need to move forward. And there are two prongs of that. There is the the government and non-governmental coordination. How are government entities at the federal, state, and local level going to coordinate response and recovery services with those NGO partners on the ground? What does that look like? And when should um, responsibilities change hands? In addition, there's a lot of coordination that needs to happen amongst the non-governmental sector on the ground. And so that's between the nonprofit sector as well as the for-profit sector. How are they engaged in conversations? Where is their roles in building uh, community resilience for future events, but also helping a community recover. A lot of that has not yet been spelled out, but with the new sort of energy around these policy documents, we really have a great time and space to have those conversations. There are some things that we've identified in our research at RAND and with our colleagues nationally that are critical next steps in thinking about the role of this non-governmental sector. Particularly given the financial times that we are under, it's going to be increasingly important to have some of these um, public-private partnerships moving forward. But we don't yet have a plan to leverage NGO assets systematically. So first and foremost, we don't have really a good plan to track what these NGO uh, organizations provide. We know uh, anecdotally, but not necessarily empirically, what are the critical capacities and capabilities that each NGO can provide to the discussion, can help in terms of disaster preparedness, and really help to strengthen the larger public health system and the emergency response system. We need a plan to do that a little bit more organized and in a more structured way, and to try and be able to surface some of those assets and responsibilities uh, in a, a cohesive fashion. 
The other piece is that we actually don't have clarity on the roles and responsibilities of particular NGOs. And so we think of them as sort of one monolith sector when in fact they vary in size and capacity. We all know that there are small NGOs that provide important services in communities, small community-based organizations and, and whatnot, but then there's also national coordinating bodies um, for larger NGOs such as uh, Lutheran Disaster Services or the Points of Light Hands-On Network. And so we have to think about who's ready and who's capable and who's reliable to respond in different ways and what roles and responsibilities should each have. The other piece of trying to really map the assets is to try and then develop a plan for accountability. We need some metrics to try and understand, once we outline the roles and responsibilities of the NGOs, what are our expectations for NGO engagement? What are our metrics around government NGO coordination? And what are our metrics around how to engage that NGO systematically over the course of the disaster cycle? And with accountability comes not only expectations and requirements, but potentially comes a different plan for how we finance um, our emergency response capabilities moving forward. There are also opportunities for dual use around resilience building. There are things that, for example, the public health department or the non-governmental sector in coordination with the public health department do to really strengthen communities around public health promotion and so forth. Those same activities can really be opportunities for integrating emergency response and recovery. One of the clear examples is chronic disease prevention. We often use community health workers to try and improve community health needs and, and local setting, trying to address the needs of uh, marginalized populations. This is an opportunity to integrate emergency discussions in those conversations. And finally, we have a lot of really exciting examples nationally of demonstration communities that are really doing some of this resilience building. We have a, an ongoing project with the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health and non-governmental partners. These examples must be um, examined so that we can take the evidence from what's working and what's not working and share them with other communities that want to do more of this non-governmental integration, who want to do more resilience building, and scale up both the successes and the lessons learned. Thank you. I'd like to make the case that public health preparedness requires a global view. The reality is really that global health has, uh, public health has become global. As Dr. Bill Fagey, one of the world's most respected global health leaders, said it ran just last week, every place in the world is both lo local and global. We cannot make the United States safe without making the world safe. Well, why is that? Infected people, contaminated food, and other products can come from any part of the world and, and reach and enter the United States in just hours, and they do. Also, Americans who uh, travel or reside uh, can be overseas can be exposed to health threats overseas. For example, and they can even bring some of those diseases home with them, and they can be caught up in natural disasters that occur in other countries. For example, the Asian tsunami, or uh, the hate, the earthquake in Haiti last year. Progress is being made, but there's still more that needs to be done. For example, there really is a growing recognition of the increasingly global nature of public health. That was spurred in large part by the high profile events of SARS, avian flu, H5N1, and the H1N1 pandemic. Young Americans are increasingly getting interested uh, in, in global health, which is a good thing. The H1N1 pandemic illustrated that progress has been made uh, with regard to US global cooperation and surveillance. Uh, 
and also in sharing of medical countermeasures such as vaccines and drugs. But the pandemic also illustrated that more needs to be done with regard to surveillance and with regard to making sure that there are enough vaccines and drugs available for everyone around the world who may need them in a large-scale disaster, and also better response coordination. What else is also needed despite all of this progress? We need to get more young, find ways to get more young people involved. We need to increase local awareness of really the global view, as I'm trying to argue for. We need to improve synergies across U.S. global health programming and really uh, foster more upfront relationships uh, between U.S. government staff and their foreign counterparts. That, some of the progress that was made um, during the H1N1 pandemic really was in large part because U.S. government staff had upfront relationships with some of their foreign counterparts. The real challenge is that a weak link in public health preparedness anywhere in the world creates vulnerabilities for the United States and other parts of the world. It's really in every country's health security interest to, to be part of global cooperation. So what's the path forward? I believe that the path forward is based on recognizing the reality that of the increasing globalization of public health and harnessing opportunities to take advantage of that. First, increase local awareness. Local clinicians and local health departments really should be thinking of diseases in other countries when they see patients uh, with unusual diseases, when they investigate outbreaks, and when they help prepare Americans uh, for international travel. Secondly, the United States should deploy its financial and technical resources efficiently in its routine global health programming. And it should improve the synergies within and across federal agencies. Perhaps an in-depth analytic study could help in that regard. Third, it's important even in these times of austerity to replicate and emulate known successful programming that we know provides bang for the buck and helps to build those upfront relationships that are so important in a time of emergency. For example, RAND convened a conference last year for the National Intelligence Council in which federal agency officials examined foreign perceptions of the U.S. government's strategic laboratory cooperation with other countries. Fourth, uh, institutionalize a mechanism for capturing and sharing exemplary practices in disaster management between the United States and the international community. And in particular, let's add international exemplary practices to the U.S. arsenal of lessons learned for this purpose. RAND conducted a study, and we've published a paper that's available to you that actually describes this in more detail. And then finally, and coming full circle to what Art and Jeffrey and Jeannie and others have said, the national health security strategy and the forthcoming biennial implementation plan really do lay a foundation, but the, but the reauthorization of PAPA perhaps could become more explicit with regard to this, these, this global dimension, the global view that I believe is required for public health preparedness. Okay, so just to put a bow on the package and review the key take-home points, progress has been made since September 11th, but there's more to do. However, as you have just heard from the panelists, there is a clear path forward, and that path is really mapped out by the National Health Security Strategy of the United States, a living document that needs to be periodically revisited and revised, but provides both a plan and clear benchmarks for whether or not we are strengthening the health security of the United States. 
Second, the focus of the last 10 years has largely been on emergency preparedness, but resilience also matters. It is unrealistic and I would argue naive to think that Homeland Security and local law enforcement and our military are going to prevent every single terrorist strike from ever again happening in the United States. We know there will be an event sooner or later, and we know that natural disasters will occur and epidemics will emerge from Mother Nature, if not from a bioterrorist. And so we have to not only be prepared to deal with those threats, we need to have the capacity to get knocked down, get up, recover, and come right back as a great nation with strong communities. So resilience also matters, and NGOs and the private sector have an enormous role to play in resilience as well as in preparedness. And finally, national health security requires a global view. Germs don't respect borders. They don't care about political ideology. Whether an infectious agent is brought into this country purposely by a bioterrorist, unwittingly by a refugee, or a clueless American tourist, it ultimately doesn't matter. The threat is the same, and our capacity to respond needs to be there and to deal with that hazard. I can't resist the temptation to offer, as a panel, some of our thoughts about PAPA and the reauthorization. Two quick attaboys, two opportunities for further improvement of the legislation before it comes through Congress and reaches the President's desk. First, we salute and commend the ongoing commitment to base PAPA on the National Health Security Strategy. It was called for in the original legislation. It is in the current document. There has to be a roadmap that helps hold everyone accountable and give us a focus and, and sense of direction. Second, we also commend the House in the language that's been drafted to date on explicitly designating the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response as the go-to entity within Health and Human Services for mobilizing efforts around preparedness. The more that Congress can provide explicit direction, the less turf fights, uh, and, and struggles about who's in charge and who's making decisions that will occur, and that's really good for everybody. As far as opportunities for improvement, we would ask that there be a clearer recognition that we have to have a strong infrastructure, both in public health and in the healthcare system, to be able to respond to a mass casualty event or a population threat. I think a decade of experience would show us that what I call the Zamboni model of public health preparedness doesn't work. Building a shiny apparatus that is going to respond to the major threat, locking it in a garage, putting a padlock and saying, we'll get it out on the day we need it, and then not focusing on the day-to-day, hour-to-hour, week-to-week operational components is not a smart strategy. It not only won't work when you need it to work, but you won't have the infrastructure, the staff, and the skills that are necessary to be able to use that apparatus effectively to protect the public and to ensure swift recovery. So day-to-day -day preparedness and day-to-day -day operations are essential to being able to ramp up for a major population threat. And finally, to quote a former president, trust but verify. Saying you're ready isn't good enough. We need to have periodic no-notice tests of hospital capacity, public health functioning. We need to utilize after-action reports every time BioWatch signals an alarm and everybody rushes to figure out is this a natural contaminant or is this a potential threat, those are incredible opportunities to learn how well do we work, how well do we analyze, do we make good decisions. 
Every time there is a middle level event, there are learning opportunities. And so we need to be committed to capitalizing both on no notice drills and on after action reports to learn. And finally, we can also learn, as Melinda said, from global responses and global experience. We have not yet done the rigorous after action analysis as a nation, much less as an international community, on what worked well and what could have done better in Haiti or in other earthquakes or in the tsunamis in Japan and prior to that uh, in other parts of the world. So we need to take advantage of these lessons. And as Melinda pointed out in her report with RAND, some of the best lessons we can learn are from our international colleagues abroad. So we have not only a lot to give to the global community, but a lot to learn as well. But the fact is, we have covered a lot of ground in this country. We are better prepared today, but we cannot rest. We have opportunities moving forward. And we at RAND and all of you in this room and the offices you work for have an opportunity to work together to create an even stronger and more resilient nation. So with that, we're going to bring the formal remarks to a close. Wynn's going to come back up. The cameras will go off. And then we will welcome your comments and your questions and thoughts. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.